Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If only they weren't so nice. If only they weren't so nice. This was a thought I kept having when I served as a missionary for a year overseas in Bangkok, Thailand. Thailand is known as the land of smiles, and the people there are so friendly and kind and hospitable. Over and over again, I was awed by just how graciously they received me. If I were honest with myself, I'd say, you know what, they were kind of nicer than a lot of Christians I've known. (laughs) And this was the problem, because as you may know, Thailand is by no means a Christian nation. About 99% of the country is Buddhist. There's even a saying, to be Thai is to be Buddhist. And here I was, as a missionary, bringing the good news of the gospel to people and telling them that in Jesus alone are we saved. I think it would have been an easier message for me to give and to proclaim and to recognize the need for it if they were total jerks, right? If they were just miscreants, I said, man, these Thai people are awful. I really got to bring them some good news to show them they need that forgiveness. But instead, they were just so nice. And so I wrestled with that. And maybe you have too with the people in your lives who don't know the Lord. Friends or family whom you know, whom you love, who are in many respects good people. And you can't help but wonder, Lord, Will few be saved? Thankfully, we're not the first ones to ask this question. In fact, in Jesus' own day, the question gets asked as there's a group of people following with the Lord and the disciples, and apparently there was like an open Q&A session or something like that, and so a guy steps up to the mic. "Uh, Yes, Lord, question for you. Um, Will few be saved? Will few be saved? It's a question that is pressing today, no less than it was 2,000 years ago, and many answers have been given over the history of the church. What I want to do this morning is to examine those answers, to think about it, to wrestle with it a little bit before we reflect on Jesus' own words and how he responds to that question. Will those who are saved be few? Well, there's some who say, yes, those who are saved will be few. Most famously in the Christian tradition, um, folks of the a Calvinist persuasion, like the Puritans of our nation's founding were this way. And they would say, yeah, only a few are going to be saved. God's going to pick out, they called it limited atonement. He's going to just pick out a few that he likes. As for all the rest, they're going to H-E double hockey sticks. But as for both groups, they don't really have a say in the matter. And there is some biblical support for this. Jesus does say those mysterious things such as many are called, but few are chosen. And we have to say, too, that to answer this way and to say that few will be saved and you don't have anything to do with it, it's just totally God's predestining work, that really does underscore our total, utter dependence on God, doesn't it? And so when you answer the question that way, yeah, only a few are going to be saved, it does make some sense. But there's some issues with it, too. There's some issues with it when we think about this answer. If we say that, yeah, only a few that are going to be saved. For instance, how do you know that you are one of the few? One of those Puritans of our nation's founding, a guy by the name of William Perkins, said, well, there's two ways. One way is that you somehow mystically ascend up into heaven and ask God himself if you're one of the few. 
Perkins doesn't give any explanation how to do that, though. So we're kind of like, okay, we can't ascend into heaven. And so he says the better, safer route is to descend into yourself. To descend into yourself and to look and to examine your own heart and say, am I a good person? Have I been walking with the Lord? Have I been faithful? How well have I I kept his Ten Commandments? How faithful have I been in my life? And you know what? Some days you might be able to do that and get away with it, right? There's some days you get up early, you have some quiet time with the Lord, you refrain from kicking the dog, you don't yell at the kids, and by the end of the day you think, you know what? I just might be one of those few. But there's other days, and if we're honest, they're probably the more common ones, where we think, Lord, if only if you are saved, I don't stand a chance. Because the reality is that if we look to ourselves for assurance and for certainty of our salvation, we're never going to find it. But there's an even deeper problem if we answer this question, will those who are saved be few? If we say, yep, it's only going to be a few, it gives short shrift to the expansiveness of God's own grace. When it says in the scriptures that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Not just a few, not just the frozen chosen, right? He wants all people to be saved. For God so loved the what? World. Not just for God so loved the good people, for God so loved a handful, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all who believe in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And so in answer to this question, will those who are saved be few, we don't want to answer outright, yeah, it's just going to be a few, just a handful. It doesn't do justice to the scriptures. It doesn't do justice to the heart of our God who desires all people to be saved. Okay, then what? Will those who are saved be few? Others will answer just the opposite and say, no, those who are saved won't be few. There will be many saved, or even everybody. That at the end of the day, God is going to rescue everyone, whether they know it or not. There was a theologian in the 20th century, a guy by the name of Karl Rahner, who answered this way. And you say, well, well, how do you get there? How do you give an explanation that at the end, everybody's going to be saved? Don't they have to, to believe in Jesus? And Rahner would say, well, see, they're just anonymous Christians. They're anonymous Christians. They're Christians, and they don't even know it. They might be Buddhists or Muslims. They might even be atheists. And yet they are anonymously Christian if they lead a basically decent and good life. Which might come as a surprise to many atheists and Muslims and Buddhists saying, oh, really? So I'm a Christian? I didn't even know it? Now, there might be some uh, relief to hear that. You think, okay, good. So then everybody is going to be saved. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about my friends or neighbors or or family members who don't believe in the Lord. I don't have to worry about those Thai folks on the other side of the world. Because at the end, God's just going to say, you know what? Forget it. Everybody in. Everybody in. All are saved. It sounds lovely. And once again, we do know that God's heart is that all people would be saved. But this, too, has some issues. One of those issues is illustrated by the author Annie Dillard. She recounts the story of this missionary, a Jesuit missionary, who goes up into the furthest reaches of Alaska in order to uh, evangelize the Inuits. He goes up and he's sharing this message with one of the Inuit chieftains. And the man says to him, he kind of stops him partway, and he says, I just have a question for you, Father. He says, okay, go ahead. He says, if you hadn't told me about God and sin, would God still send me to hell? 
And the priest says, oh, no, by no means. God is just, and if you hadn't heard the message, then you wouldn't have to worry about hell. And the Inuit man then says, then why did you come and tell me? Then why would you come and tell me? This is a variation of that idea that ignorance is bliss. If God's ultimately just going to save everybody, why in the world would we bother to do mission work? Why would Jesus give the great commission to send us out into all nations? But there's an even deeper issue here, see. Because to say that at the end all are going to be saved just without respect to their faith, their trust in Christ Jesus, ultimately that downplays the power of sin. We act as though everybody is just basically good. It doesn't even do justice to our own experience in the world. Let me give you just a commonplace example from this past week. This past week I was serving at Camp Arcadia and I had a wonderful opportunity to baptize this beautiful little girl, Georgia. And the family, they let me hold Georgia. And so I hold on to Georgia. I'm walking around, and she is screaming bloody murder. I tell you what, ah, ah, you'd think I was poking her with needles. I promise you I was not, right? But whatever, she's a baby. I think this is just babies. They cry. But then I give her back to her dad. And I, I swear to you, I tell you the truth, I give her back to her dad. And her dad holds Georgia, and Georgia looks at me over his shoulder, stops crying immediately, and gives me this look. <laughs> if original sin isn't real, I don't know what to make of this. See, if we aren't ultimately all utterly lost apart from the Lord, why did Jesus come? What was all that death and resurrection stuff about if at the end God was just going to wink at sin and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal? No, folks, it's a deathly big deal. That's why our Lord sacrificed himself. He does desire that all would be saved. But apart from him, there is no salvation. And so we see how both of these answers to the question, will few be saved, whether you say, yeah, few will be saved, there's just a handful, and we hope that we're one of them. Or if you say, no, it's not going to be a few, it might even be everybody. In both cases, those are really just two sides of the same coin. Because both of those answers hang their hats on a kind of system, on some abstract answer to a theoretical question, rather than leading us back to the Lord Jesus. Whether you say yes or whether you say no to the question, will few be saved, you are led astray from the Savior himself. And so that brings us to door number three, to Jesus' own answer to the question, will those who are saved, be few. What does Jesus say? He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. But you hear that, and it's an answer that kind of sounds like a non-answer, doesn't it? Like some kind of political evasiveness. Jesus is like, man, that's a really tough question. Maybe I just need to change the subject here, right? But that's not what it is at all. See, in fact, the brilliance of Jesus' answer is what he is saying, in effect, is, listen, guys, when you want an answer, just a straightforward yes or no answer to that question, will those who are saved be few? You're getting yourself into God's business. It's God's business to know the, the roles of heaven. It's God's business to know how many ultimately will be saved. Our business is simply to live in relationship with our Lord. And by answering that way, strive to enter through the narrow door. He's drawing us back to himself. See, Jesus says elsewhere, I am the door. 
And again, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. By telling us to strive to enter through the narrow door, he's saying in effect, listen, what you need is me. You don't need an answer to the question of how many are going to be saved, how big heaven's capacity is. What you need is me, to live in relationship with me, to hold fast to me. And look at how brilliant this answer is too, because it gives us both certainty and striving. It brings about both certainty and striving, because on the one hand, it brings about a certainty that we could never have otherwise. When Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door, and he says, I am the door, he's saying, listen, if you look to me, you trust in me, you are assured of your salvation. You don't need to go out looking down into your own gut and to see, have I been a good enough person? Nor hang your hat on just some abstract theory about how many might be saved. But instead, look to me, trust to me. Already, you've already been brought through the door of salvation through holy baptism. Here is that portal, that entryway into heaven. And each and every week as we come and receive the Lord's gifts, again, we are brought through that door, assured of our certain, made certain of our communion, our fellowship with Christ. It depends not on ourselves, but on Him. When Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door, it gives us that certainty. But also, it still spurs us on to strive after Him. See, Jesus doesn't just give a, a flat answer in which we might say, well, Either I'm in or I'm out, and that's all there is. And we would be tempted to treat our relationship with God like fire insurance, right? Like, okay, I made a decision once upon a time. Now I don't need to worry about that faith stuff, and I'm just going to go on and live however I want to live. But instead, Jesus says, strive to enter through that narrow door, because now you've been baptized into a spiritual battle. Now to live by faith means that for the rest of our lives, we're walking with the Lord, looking to Him, seeking to follow after Him. It gives us that, that motivation and that summons to stay with him and not just act as though faith was a one-time action, but instead it's a lifetime dynamic reality, trusting in him. I think back to my friends in Thailand who in many ways were nicer than even many Christians I've met, but they too were in need of the Savior. We all are. We live from him alone, but in Christ Jesus, we need not have any question of our salvation. In Him, every question is answered yes. In Him, you have that assurance that you are, have entered through that narrow door. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.